But I'm glad that you're all here, glad to, for the opportunity to come together to study God's Word uh, together for a few moments. And so I want to invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to James chapter 5. And James chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 6 this morning. Uh, and that's our next passage in our study of James. And so as you find your way there, uh, I would like to invite you once more, if you are able, to stand with me. Uh, in honor of the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." You have lived on this earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that on this rainy and dreary day, uh, coming off of uh, the joy of celebrating the Christmas season and looking forward to the hope of a new year, that perhaps this text might not have been my first pick. <laughs> it's, it's tough words, God, but this is your word, uh, and, and you teach us through your word. And so, Father, I pray now for your help as we look at this passage in James. I pray, Father, that uh, your spirit would be at work in our hearts to convict us of our sin, to show us the hope that we have in the gospel, Lord, to repent and to turn to you in faith. So, Lord, I ask for your help now as I preach and as we listen to what your word says in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I read this week a, a recent Ipsos public opinion poll. Uh, this poll was published by several newspapers and uh, reveals what we as Americans will be making as our New Year's, but not only our New Year's resolutions, but also a new decade of resolutions uh, for 2020. And so the, <clears throat> what this poll revealed was some of it was uh, not so surprising some of it actually came as a little bit of a surprise to me as to what it revealed. Uh, so I want to share with you some of these statistics. Uh, according to this poll, 22% of Americans polled said that they want to live a more eco-friendly life in the new decade. So I guess folks want to recycle some more and drive more fuel-efficient cars. 38% of Americans said that they wanted to improve or to focus on improving their mental health. And so they're concerned for their mental well-being, and so they're going to focus on improving their mental health. And that kind of brings us to the top two. And this is where I was a little bit surprised. 
42% of Americans polled said that it is their goal in the new decade to lose weight and to live a healthier lifestyle. Now, I thought that would be number one. Uh, that, that seems to be the number one thing that most people resolve to do each new year, but it was only uh, second place at 42%. 51% of Americans polled say that in this new decade, they want to increase their wealth. Our country is a country that is obsessed with wealth. I'm not making a political statement when I say this. This is just an observation of fact. This exact same survey revealed that most Americans believe that a good job with a good income is their key to living a healthy and a happy lifestyle. We are a country, we are a people that is obsessed with wealth. Now, I, on the one hand, am very grateful, and you should be grateful, too, that we live in a country, that we live in, a society, uh, in such a society, that upward mobility is such a possibility. That is a blessing from the Lord. That is not something that we should be ashamed of. That is not something that we uh, should, uh, should shy away from. We are in a country and in a society that upward mobility is possible, and that is a blessing. However, as Christians, we need to be very, very careful living in such a society. Money and wealth and material possessions, as obsessed with these things as our culture may be, we understand that these things are not ultimate things. They're not permanent things. John Calvin once said that the human heart is like an idol-making factory. And I think it's pretty clear that the idol of our day, the idol that most of our culture worships, is the idol of the almighty dollar. In our passage this morning, James speaks with clear and prophetic zeal to the rich, to people of means, And we are nearing the end of a section. It might kind of seem like in our progress through the book of James that this is kind of another one of those passages that seems a little bit random. That, you know, where is he going with this? How did he get uh, from making plans and being presumptuous about future to wealth all of a sudden? Well, there's, there is a method to James's madness. There is a flow of thought here. See, this is a piece of a section in the letter that began all the way back in uh, the end of chapter 3, where James has been contrasting this life of godly wisdom with worldly wisdom. And he's encouraging us as Christians to live lives of godly wisdom, not to live our lives according to worldly wisdom. So just a really quick recap of what we've seen so far. In chapter 4, verse 10... James calls us to humble ourselves before the Lord because if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will be the one who lifts us up. So there's this call for gospel humility. 
James says in chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, that uh, one, one way that we can see worldly wisdom play out in our lives is by ju- being judgmental towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we're judgmental towards other believers and lording our judgment over them, uh, we are uh, not living a life that uh, resembles gospel humility, but we are living a life that resembles worldly, uh, worldly wisdom. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, James says that one mark of worldly wisdom is to make presumptuous plans about the future, right? To forget the fact that God is the one who holds his future in, uh, or holds our future in his hands. So to make presumptuous plans is not a mark of gospel humility, it's a mark of worldly wisdom. And now here in chapter 5, James says that placing our hope in our money Placing our hope in our wealth and living a self-indulgent lifestyle is the mark of worldly wisdom and shows a lack of gospel humility. You'll remember that in that uh, section before that we looked at last time with James talks about making presumptuous plans. He's writing that to a group of Christian merchants who are making plans about their next business venture. And so now he turns his attention again uh, to those who would use their wealth right, as an idol and lord their wealth over other people. So, main idea, kind of the, the if I could take this, uh, these six verses and boil it down uh, to one take-home sentence, this is what it would be. So the main idea. Money will not satisfy your heart because it is a false god. It's pretty simple. Money will not satisfy your heart because it's a false god. So be careful how you use your money. Maybe we could say be wise. Use godly wisdom in the way that you use your resources. So James opens this section here by, uh, <clears throat> by commanding. It's actually a, a, a call, a warning to the rich. Look down there at verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, I think one question that we have to wrestle with is who exactly is it that James is writing this to? He addresses it here in verse 1 just to you rich, right? And so perhaps he's talking to all rich people, any people with means. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's the rich person that he goes on to describe in the following verses. Primarily, this is a person, I believe, who's not a believer, This is a a person of wealth, a person of means who who doesn't have their faith in Jesus, but has their faith in their means, in their wealth. I think that's who James is primarily writing to. Uh, He says here that they are uh, to mourn, right, to weep and to howl over the judgment that's coming their way. So I don't think primarily James has in mind here people who have their faith in Jesus, Because those of us who have our faith in Jesus, we don't fear that final judgment that's coming from God, right? Christ has taken that from us on the cross, and we have nothing left to fear from judgment from God. And so I don't think that James here is primarily talking to Christians who are people of wealth. I think he's talking here to unbelievers, to people who have their faith and their trust, not in Jesus, but in their money. And I want to say from the outset, 
It's easy to read the book of James. In fact, it's easy to read the Bible and to think that God just doesn't like rich people. But that's not the case. If you read the scripture carefully, your money in and of itself is not an evil thing. But the human heart, which is so prone to make idols, finds money highly desirable. So it can be the root of many evils. But in and of itself, it's not evil. So I want to clarify here that, that there are multiple examples in Scripture of people who were people of great means, but they were righteous in the eyes of God. So James here isn't, isn't condemning people with money, all people with money. But it's the person whose heart is taken captive by their wealth. Ecclesiastes 5.10 talks about how wealth is insatiable, right? It, it, it doesn't satisfy our hearts. It says, whoever loves money never has enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Right? So the thirst for wealth can never be quenched because it is a false god, and false gods do not satisfy our hearts. So every Christian, Every Christian, even if this isn't directly addressed to believers, I do think that every Christian needs to hear James's warning here in verse 1. Even if we don't fear final judgment from God, we are all tempted to use whatever riches we might have in self-indulgent ways. And James teaches us here that it's this type of self-indulgent lifestyle, this abusive lifestyle, as we will see, that is what leads to judgment. Now, I think there are three reasons here that James uh, gives us in this passion as to why money can't satisfy our hearts. Okay, so those are going to be our three points uh, from our text this morning. And so point number one, the first reason why money can't satisfy your heart is because money is temporary and it's perishable. Money's temporary and it's perishable. Look at what he says there in verse 2. He says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten and your gold and silver have corroded. Right? He, he gives this picture, this threefold picture. Uh, think of the man who, who has amassed for himself all of this wealth. He's hoarded it up. Right? He, he has coffers that are full of coins. He has closets that are bursting at the seams with clothes right? he has money full in his pockets in his wallet yet those riches are starting to rot away those closets full of clothes are starting to be eaten by moths and his gold is starting to rust and corrode I think James's words here, they, they echo the words of Jesus that I read earlier from Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The point here that James is making is that material wealth doesn't last forever. It makes a pretty sorry God to worship because it's not permanent. It's temporary. It's perishable. And so to place your hope and to place your trust in money is foolish because it won't last. It'll let you down. It'll run out. 
Right? Putting your faith in money to make you happy is like drinking a big cup of coffee to fight your sleepiness. I didn't start drinking coffee until I was in seminary when it was necessary. Right? Uh, I didn't like the taste of it. I liked the smell of it, but I never liked the taste of it. And I'll never forget the first cup of coffee that I drank. I was in a Hebrew class and I was studying a lot not getting very much sleep. And so I thought, I need something that's going to give me a little bit of a boost. And so I turned on the coffee pot and drank a cup of coffee. Coffee will give you a temporary boost. But what happens after that boost is over? You come crashing down, right? Putting your uh, faith in your wealth is like drinking the cup of coffee to solve your problem of sleepiness. Might satisfy for a moment. Might take care of your issue for a moment. But it's not the cure. Look down again at verse 3. He says in verse 3, he says, Your silver and your gold have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Those are really strong words from James. Right? He's saying here that that very wealth that these people are hoarding up and striving to attain, that very wealth will one day testify against them. It will be their undoing in the final judgment. So those who find their satisfaction and their hope in the balance of their bank account will one day be sorely let down when that, work, when that money won't save them. <laughs> it's not worth anything on the last day. So, again here, I want to make sure that we understand that James is not saying that it's a sin to save money. It's not a sin to work and to gain money. It's not a sin to put money aside to save it. This is a person who is amassing great wealth for themselves to be spent on themselves. Paul has some helpful words for us here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul talks to Timothy and tells Timothy, the young preacher, to teach his congregation these things about their wealth, how, how it is that they're to use their wealth. And I think there's some good and positive instructions that can help us guard our hearts against uh, making an idol out of temporary things. He says, first off, we're to use our money we're to use our wealth to meet our basic needs and then to be content with what we have. It says that in early in verse in chapter 6. So we're to use our money to meet our basic needs and then to be content with what we have. And then he goes on in, in, in uh, verse 17 and says that we should save money. And he gives two reasons why we should save money. One is so that it can be enjoyed for present enjoyment. So it's not a sin to save money for something that you enjoy. And then he goes on to say that you should save money to lay a foundation for future needs. So, so it's not unbiblical. It's not a sin to set aside money for enjoyment or to set aside money uh, to lay a foundation for future stability when needs arise. That's, that's a perfectly biblically wise thing to do. And then most important, most important, Paul says that we're to be generous in giving and meeting the needs of others. Three ways that Paul tells us positively to use our wealth to, to, to meet our needs and to be content, to set some aside, to enjoy, and to lay a foundation for future needs, and then to be generous in meeting the needs of those that are around us. But what James is speaking against here is people who aren't doing that. They're hoarding up and amassing great wealth for themselves, 
to be used on themselves, to be used on temporary things. So brothers and sisters, don't put your hope in your money because it's temporary and it's perishable. But put your hope in God. Notice the contrast here between money and the one true and living God. You've got this false god of wealth, this idol of wealth that's temporary and perishable, can be eaten by moths and stolen. And then on the other side, you've got the one true and living God, the creator of the universe, the one who always was and always is and always will be, the one who never changes, who never fails. That's who you need your hope in, the one who never fades, the one who never changes. So money is temporary and perishable. Number two. The love of money leads to abuse and injustice. The love of money leads to abuse and injustice. He says there in verse 4, he says, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now there's a specific complaint here. There's a specific complaint here. These people have abused and committed fraud against those who are dependent upon them for their well-being. Right? God's law has a great deal to say to those who employ people. God spent a lot of time detailing in his word, in the Old Testament, uh, how it is that uh, people who uh, employ others who have other people's welfare, who control their money and their benefits, how they are to treat other people. Uh, jot these verses down. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, uh, Moses says that employers must pay their laborers' wages before the sun goes down, without delay, right? Because the laborer is counting on those means to meet their basic needs. In Old Testament days, when you had these day laborers, uh, what their livelihood for that day depended upon that day's pay, done for that day's work. And so uh, God is giving provision for those workers, saying, don't, don't let the sun go down before you pay them, because most of them, if they didn't get paid that day for the work uh, that they had done, them and their families don't get to eat that day. And so God is protecting them by giving this law, saying, don't let the sun go down before you pay them. Jeremiah twenty-two thirteen. 13. It's another passage you can jot down. Jeremiah twenty-two thirteen. 13. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah here is prophesying against the son of Josiah. And he says against the king of Israel that <clears throat> the king has forced these people to build his own house. And then once the work was completed, the king refused to pay him. And the prophet prophesies against this king and against his house, and God brings swift and certain judgment upon that king. Actually, it's shortly thereafter that the kingdom is even lost to Babylon. And then the last passage that I think specifically James has in mind here is Leviticus 19.13. In Leviticus 19.13 says, You shall not rob your neighbor or oppress him. Pay the worker his wages. Pay the worker his wages. Now, oftentimes wealth leads people to abuse those who are beneath them. And it does this because people think that they can get away with it. 
See, money gives this false, uh, or can give this false facade of power and authority that's, that's undue. And James here is saying that the cries of these laborers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. How many times in Scripture we see that God, uh, he protects and he cares for the poor, cares for the worker. King David wrote in Psalm 69, verse 33, that the Lord hears the cries of the needy. And then in Psalm 109, 31, the Lord stands at the right hand of the needy. Now, there are some of you who are in this room who employ people. You have folks who work directly under you. And I think this passage has a very clear and direct application to you. Right? You need to be gracious and generous in paying your people. So if you're a person who has authority over another person's wages or their benefits, it is your God-given role to be just and to be fair to your laborers. Take care of your people. Now, many of us, probably most of us in this room, don't have that kind of authority as our vocation. But I think the principle of the text still applies to us. That we need to be gracious and generous and be willing to meet the needs of those out of our abundance. Right? Perhaps you're here this morning, you don't have authority to hire and pay a worker's wages, but you do have people that you employ in your life. Every single one of us have people that we employ in our lives. Think about that waiter or waitress that's about to serve you lunch in just a few minutes. That's somebody that you employ in your life. And the principle here is, is that you pay the worker his wages. I think about the person who mows your lawn or who uh, takes care of uh, your drain when it doesn't work right or fixes your refrigerator or works on your car or any number of ways that you employ people in your life. It's our God-given call. It's our God-given responsibility to use our means to bless those who serve us. So what about you? Do you use your resources? Do you, do you see your resources that God has given you as something that God has given you so that you can enjoy it? It belongs to you to be spent on whatever you desire. Or perhaps the reason why God has given you what you have is not to be a selfish hoarder of wealth, but it's to be a generous giver and a wise steward. So, money can't satisfy our hearts because it's temporary and perishable, and the love of money can't satisfy our hearts because it leads to abuse and injustice, something that God hates. And then number three, lastly, loving money causes us to live for the pleasures of this world and not for the pleasures of heaven. So the love of money causes us to live for the pleasures that this world provides and not for the pleasures that are ours in heaven. Now, there are two words in, in verse 5 here that I think are really interesting, right? And they describe how this person lives, how this person that can expect God judge, God's judgment lives. The first word there in verse 5 is this word luxury, right? They live their life in luxury. Now, the, the word here, this Greek word is trypho. Okay, it's trypho, and I don't know uh, for sure 
I tried to find it, but I couldn't. If this is where we get our English word, but it reminds me of the English word trifle. I'm not talking about the dessert. And I'm not talking about the mushroom. That's truffle. This is trifle, right? Trifle things are, are things that are, are worthless. They're things that really have very, very little value. How much in our lives are trifle things? These people are spending their wealth on trifle things, things that, that have no lasting value. And it's interesting to me how often we as a society, we as a culture do this. Just think of the possessions that, that you have. Maybe some of the things that you just unwrapped from under the Christmas tree, if they're still bringing you pleasure and joy at this point, right? What are those things? Well, maybe it's a computer, or maybe it's, you know, a piece of technology, maybe, I, I don't know. But what is that? What is that thing? Odds are it's made cheaply, right? Think of the iPhone, right? iPhone. I've got an iPhone. Uh, there's nothing against iPhones. These are cool things. They do a lot of stuff, right? I've got a lot of stuff. It, it helps me remember things, right? And people place such a value on these things. Right? And, and they're handy devices to use, and, and, and people spend a lot of time and a lot of money, an obscene amount of money, on these things. But what is it? It's a piece of rubber and plastic and glass. It does cool stuff, but it's a piece of plastic. Think about that car you drive that you love, or that car that you wish that you could drive. Now, I'm not talking about the classic cars. Those are made a little different. But that car that you drive, what is that? It's rubber and some metal and an increasing amount of plastic <laughs> as time goes on, right? It, it's really not anything that's worth a whole lot. But we spend so much of our money and so much of our resource to acquire these trifle things that are just going to wear out. They're built to wear out so that you'll buy it new in a couple of years. This person is a person who lives their life in luxury, spending their money on trifle things. The second word that James uses here that's interesting to me is self-indulgence. Right? Luxury and self-indulgence. This is a person who lives their life purely for their own pleasure. Without concern about other people, without the concern of meeting the needs of those who are around them, but purely for their own pleasure. They seek to satisfy only themselves, without a care in the world for anyone else who's around them. Notice here that James compares this person to a cow. <laughs> he, he says, you're fattening up your heart for a day of slaughter. The, the picture here that, that James is painting is that, is that of a cow, right? Some of you guys raise cattle, right? You take a lot of care to raise those cattle, you take good care of those animals. You, you, you raise them up. You do everything that you can do to keep them healthy and, and uh, free of sickness or disease. You feed them the finest grass that you can find and you fatten them up with corn, right? Why do you do that? You're preparing them for judgment day, right? That day when they're going to be taken to the slaughterhouse. So that in the proper time, you can harvest the best meat possible. You see that grain and that corn that you feed those cows, it's fattening them up for their destruction. 
And James says that our wealth can be a lot like that. If we live our lives for ourselves, spending it on trifle things, and living our lives in just abundance of luxury and and self-indulgence, we're fattening ourselves up for the day of destruction. We're like a cow. James here uh, compares this to the rich, uh, to a cow that's being prepared to slaughter. He says that the rich, uh, he's comfortable, uh, he's growing fat off of all that he has, but nothing that he has will help him to escape the coming judgment. Notice here that James doesn't just describe how this person is living, but where he's living too. This is really important. Uh, Look again there at verse 5. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. That phrase there, on the earth, I think is really important, right? It's important because it shows us, it shows us where this person's value lies. It shows us where this person's treasure is. They live for the pleasures and the things of this world. And they don't think anything of God in heaven. Which reminds me of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. You remember the parable? This nameless rich man who's living this life of of great luxury. And Jesus paints this picture of this man who lives in this fine house and he wears the finest clothes. He's he's clothed in these uh, uh, splendorous garments. Every single night he feasts on the most sumptuous of foods. And then there's the man Lazarus. Lazarus is a poor man. And he lives at the gate of the rich man's house. It's where he stays. And he he wishes that he could just have the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. And Lazarus, he's not clothed in, in splendorous clothes. You know what he's clothed in? Sores all over his body. The time comes and... Both the rich man and Lazarus pass away. Lazarus is taken away, it says, to the bosom of Abraham. He sits at Abraham's side. And the rich man passes away and he finds himself in hell. And where does that rich man's wealth get him? He's begging. He prays to God and he begs for Lazarus, this poor man, that he had no concern for earlier, to dip his finger in water and to come and just, to d- just touch his tongue with a drop of water to bring him some relief. A person who has their hope, that has their treasure in the things of this world, those treasures will one day run out and they will do nothing for you in the life that is to come. Right? The pleasures of this world will leave you empty, And will leave you to suffer in sorrow in the life that is to come. Well, this is all really heavy, (laughs) right? This is all really heavy. Uh, Like I said before, this this would not have been my first pick out of all the great passages in the scripture to preach. But where's the hope, right? I, I, I think that's a good question. Where's the hope that we can find in a passage like this? Well, actually, I think there is hope here. I want to read it for you. Look at verse 6. Here's the hope. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. How is that hope? How is that hope? 
right? He, he says that, that this rich person has, has uh, condemned and murdered this righteous person who couldn't do anything to help himself, who, who, who didn't even resist. Well, I think there's hope here because it points us, and, and I can't make an airtight argument that this is what James is doing, but it, it certainly seems to be. That what James is doing here is he's pointing us to Jesus. Certainly there are a lot of righteous and innocent people in this world who have been condemned and who have been murdered, who have given up their lives. But first and foremost of all those people is Jesus. Right? He is the righteous man in Scripture. He is the one who was even sold and betrayed for money. By his own friend. Gave him up for a little bit of silver. And then put on trial and, and falsely condemned and accused by the Jewish leaders. And then murdered by the Romans. But the Bible says that he did not resist. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. Now why is there hope there? There's hope there, you see, because it was God's plan all along for Jesus, this perfectly righteous man, to endure death so that you and I might not need to die. There's hope there. Jesus came and he lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. And he died on the cross to take your punishment for your sins that you deserved. And he rose again from the dead so that if you would turn away from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, you could be forgiven. So what about you today? Is your trust in Jesus? Have you responded to this good news by putting your hope in Jesus today? Have you committed your life to him? And brothers and sisters, if you have committed your life to him, that includes submitting your finances to him. You know, Vivian, and uh, she, she opened our service today by singing, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Let me be set apart for you. One of the verses that she sang, and you're familiar with this, says, Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Do you really believe that? Or are those just words that you sing? By faith, you can be prepared for that final day. By faith, you can live a life that is not tethered to the things of this world, but who has hope in the world that is to come. And that hope comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. Not through hoarding up for yourself temporarily, temporary things. Not indulging yourself in all the luxuries and all the things that this world has to offer. I pray that we will be a church family who lives our lives out of the conviction that the riches of this world are passing away and that our lives with God through Jesus Christ are eternal and rewarding and will never fade. Let's pray. Father, your word is good and it convicts and it, uh, it uh, shows us our sin. But Father, just like a surgeon's knife cuts deeply, Lord, your, the surgeon's knife also brings healing. And your word also brings healing. So I pray, Father, as we approach now this time of response, 
Father, if there are those who are here this morning who have their hope in the things of this world, I pray, Father, that you would show them the temporary nature of those possessions, that their faith and their hope would not be in themselves or in their wealth, but it would be in you and you alone. Father, I pray for those who are here today, perhaps who have never responded to this gospel message. Maybe they've never even heard that Jesus gave himself up and lived a perfect life for them. I pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will convict them of their need for you, that they will repent and trust in you today. Lord, I pray for your blessing now and your leading on this time of response to help us to respond and to obey. In Christ's name.